in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see just from this prayer that our Father actually lives in a place. Our Father in heaven. And most of the time when we when we close our eyes and we pray, when we're alone with God and we open up his word, many times we do not actually picture the place where he is. And oftentimes we don't know enough about the person to whom we're praying to make it actually real to us, to make it personal, to make it alive and vibrant and 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 fascinating because the reality is that the human spirit was made to be fascinated we were made to be in awe we were made to stand in wonder of something and when that reality is not taking place in god when we are not in awe of him and fascinated by him that leaves a gap where we're fascinated by everything else or anything else could take our attention and take our wonder and take our awe where we were meant to be fascinated by God himself. And we were made to be fascinated by the place in which he dwells. So right now, our father lives in heaven, in the heavenly temple. It's the holy of holies of that celestial city. It's the it's the highest point of the mountain city in which we we will one day live. This is the reality of heaven. So Jesus, when Jesus closed his eyes, what do you think he saw when he prayed? He saw the father. So was it oftentimes when we think about heaven? It's very. uh ethereal it's very not concrete it's like okay what's i've i've done this with multiple groups before and they i say okay what comes in your mind you think about heaven and they think of clouds and they think of um or even now that just uh, me having a hard time explaining what we think of is like well what do you think of when you think of heaven you know it's like okay we our culture portrays like sitting on clouds with harps and like this is the best god could come up with for eternity is like us sitting with a white t-shirt and on clouds with harps and um and that oh okay then apparently god's there somewhere and then and then our culture has like these little fluffy babies you know that shoot arrows (laughs) like okay is this what heaven is so we're going to talk about that today Um, When we pray, we actually come before God's throne, a real throne with a real person sitting on it. When this is an amazing privilege that humans can approach the throne of the eternal one and ask for help. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So prayer, just like worship, just like when we worship, we're worshiping a person, right? 
And the same way when we pray, when it, we close our eyes or open our eyes to pray, we're praying toward a person. And so prayer is personally oriented. Because we're speaking to someone and that someone is in a place, prayer is also locationally oriented. When you pray, you're not just hurtling phrases into the air and hoping somehow God hears them. You know, when we pray, we're actually focusing on a person that lives in a real location right now. In a place because heaven is a created place in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth before god created the heavens there was no heavens and so he created this place where he actually lives right now right we're actually strengthened in our prayer lives by learning about the one to whom we pray this includes the place where he dwells and the majestic scene that surrounds him because it reveals his beauty in a unique way. When we understand the kind of God that he is, our, relations, our relationship with him deepens and the way that we pray changes. Prayer becomes more enjoyable and thus it becomes sustainable because then we're gazing upon beauty and beauty fascinates our hearts and therefore we want to keep coming back to him and keep coming back to him because we're fascinated and we stand in wonder of him. A core scripture, Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things on the earth. Now, some of you may have heard the saying, oh, they're so heavenly minded thereof no earthly good right have, have you guys heard that saying before they're so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good but the opposite is actually true the more heavenly minded you are the more earthly good you will be because what you're saying when you say they're only heavenly minded and they're no, of no earthly good you're saying that you don't want to think like god because God is the most heavenly minded one. And if God is heavenly minded, I want to think like him. I want to be up there where he is, like Paul tells us, set your minds on things above. And the scriptures also tell us, Paul tells us, we're already seated in heavenly places with Christ, right? So we're already there positionally in we are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. So basically the scripture in Colossians 3 is saying, if you're up there, then get up there, right? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where is he seated? He's in the heavenly temple, in the holy of holies, in the celestial city, in a real place. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So it's not enough to actually study about God's majesty and God's qualities and God's characteristics. We want to be theologians, but we also want to turn it into conversation with God. 
we must talk to God about what we discover and about what we see. Because then it becomes living and active within us. The power of God's word touches us as we declare it back to God. First, we thank God for the truth that we see. So like if we're looking at the throne today, we're going to talk to God about his throne. We thank God for his throne. Thank you that your throne is real and it's set in heaven. And then we ask God to reveal a spirit of revelation about the throne. Basically, show me more. Thank you for this truth. Now show me more. Okay, and you can use that principle in every area of Bible study. As you're reading through the word of God, you thank the Lord for the truth, and then you ask him to reveal more. How many of you have been in the um, prayer leading for everyone so far? Should be everybody, right? Everybody should have gone through prayer leading for everyone um, at, at a certain time during the last two weeks, right? And you should have learned that pray reading the Bible is one of the things that we want to engage in um, in our Bible study time, in our time with Jesus. We want to turn the word of God into conversation with God. And this is what actually causes our hearts to come alive. And that's why you can actually meet these theologians and seminary professors and different ones. And sadly, they have a lot of knowledge and they've studied and they have degrees and they can tell you all about the facts of the written word of God and their hearts are not in love with the man. And I wish that were not the case, but the reality is you have to take the word and turn it into conversation with him. You have to take it and dialogue with him and ask him questions. So we're talking about heaven. We're lifting up our gaze and setting our minds on things that are above. And before we get into the details of talking about God's beauty, I just want to lay out three foundational um, realities that affect the way we think about heaven. First one is this lie that heaven is far away and uninvolved with our world. That heaven is far away and uninvolved in our world. The opposite is actually true. Heaven is deeply connected to our experience and reality simply because it's the place where God is. And God is upholding all things by the word of his power right now. And he's intentionally involved in the details of our lives. He is the sovereign king that from this place rules over creation. So it's actually the most important place that exists. Heaven is perceived often as a vague realm that is far away and uninvolved. We often think, oh yeah, God is somewhere else. God and his angels are somewhere else and they're doing some thing. And that betrays the idea that we actually don't know much about God and his ways and his throne and his, his reality that he lives from. 
Heaven, its inhabitants, and their activity are seen as fundamentally disconnected and removed from the contours as real of re our reality as we know it. The frequent use of the word realm to speak of heaven betrays this underlying distinction present in people's thoughts of heaven. When we say that it's a realm that doesn't portray or convey a real place. It's kind of like, I'm going to the next point already. It makes it seem ethereal, not concrete, not solid. Just, you know, if I went to give an angel a high five, I'd just go <laughs> right through. You know, like that's what it, it's like, oh, he's living in a realm. You know, and it's like, no, this is not the way the Bible actually portrays it. So we see the heaven is so connected with our reality because God's throne is there and he's sitting there in the heights of heaven. Psalm 11 says the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So we see Psalm 11 says that God is in his holy temple. He's in his throne room and he's beholding the eyes of uh, be, his eyes. Behold the sons of men and he's actually testing the righteous. So we see it's it's not this future at one time he will test the righteous right now he's testing the righteous that means from his throne room he's involved with his creation and actively engaged in it our western culture often portrays christianity as this thera moralistic therapeutic deism meaning moralistic we're supposed to just do what's right moralist just be moral just make right decisions just be Make good choices, right? Moralistic. That's the way I was raised. I was like, just do what's right. Therapeutic, meaning it's just about making us feel good. You know, like we go to church and it's like, well, I didn't really feel connected to the worship and to the pastor. So I'm going to go to another church. And it's this therapeutic thing. It's like about fixing people's problems and and it's so needs based, it's needs driven and all. And then therefore there's programs in the church that all are about fixing people's needs. And in some ways those are good and healthy and um, we need to help people, you know, and reach out with the ministry of healings and different things. Um, so that's moralistic, therapeutic, and then it's deism. And this is really the point that I'm hitting this morning. Deism is this idea of the God that's far away. He's distant. He he's the clockmaker in the sky that wound the springs of the clock and then let it run and things just happen. And he's just watching from afar. Unengaged, uninvolved, not. Not uh, doing anything. Related to his creation and that's not the picture that the Bible creates even just Psalm 11 He's actively testing the righteous. He's involved. He's wanting maturity. And so therefore he's he's doing things He's speaking all the time. I love Psalm 104 a different a few different verses from Psalm 104 says this He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills he waters the hills from his upper chambers. 
The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow. No one can tell me that God's not involved. He is causing the grass to grow right now. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man. That he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes the heart of uh, glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread which strengthens man's heart. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season. God is the one who gives food to people and to animals. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, and they were filled with good. You hide your face, and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. He looks on the earth, and it trembles. He touches the hills, and they smoke. You can't tell me that our God is not involved with his creation. Daily, moment by moment, he is actively sustaining, upholding, sovereignly moving and and engaged with his creation. Amen. Psalm 66, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing toward the sons of men. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. Toward the sons of men, he's ruling in his power forever. Actively ruling in his power. So, where the Lord sits is supremely important because it's where God actually makes his decisions from. It's where he rules from. Okay, next point, and this is the one that really started to change my perspective a lot when I thought about heaven, made it a lot more real to me, is that heaven actually has physical substance. Heaven is not ethereal or immaterial, right? We are... Our our conception of heaven is so ethereal, mystical and cloudy and and unclear and we just kind of think that that there's not physical substance there but the bible never talks about heaven that way let's just look at isaiah 6 verse 1 through 6 it says this in the year that king uzziah died i saw the lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And listen to this. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, if we think that heaven is immaterial and just ethereal, like, how did he, like, shake the doorposts? Well, oh, there must have been a door to a room. They were in a room that had walls and maybe a ceiling. And then there were posts of the doors that actually shook. 
Or was that just like a cloudy pillar that shook, a post that shook, you know? Or, okay, so let's keep reading what happens. Oh, and then the smoke, the house was filled with smoke. Well, was that a real smoke? Could you, could you feel the smoke? Could you smell the smoke? Like, what did it smell like? What did it look like when the smoke filled the temple? And then it says, so I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then it says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now, why did the angel need tongs? Because it was hot. From an altar of live coals that was burning. It wasn't just a heavenly hologram that, that was not real and that you couldn't touch or feel things. Angels actually feel things. And if they didn't use tongs, what would have happened? They would have got burned. <laughs> right? Heaven is a real place. It has physicality to it. It's not some sort of ethereal heavenly hologram filled with clouds, people in white robes, and cute baby angels who lack physical substance. Heaven has real sights, real sounds, real structure, and actual material substance that can be seen, touched, and interacted with. And the biggest way that we know this is because Jesus is there. In a physical body, a resurrected body, but a physical body, right? Jesus showed up after his resurrection in a physical body there where you could touch him. He said, here, touch me, feel the holes in my hands and the, the hole in my side, feel it, touch me, you know, and then he walked through a wall. <laughs> so obviously his physicality has a little bit of different dimensions than ours does right now. But then he went and he ate fish with them. You know, and like, did the fish like just dissolve through his body because he was immaterial and like a ghost? No, like he ate fish and digested it and, 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 and enjoyed the taste of it as it went into his mouth. Like, he has physical substance. So when, when Jesus, it says in Colossians 3, Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father sitting on his throne. Like when he sits down, is it just kind of like, whoa, you know, like, <laughs> like he's going to sit. It's a real chair that like has substance to it. So he actually is sitting on something real, Right. So when we think of heaven, we have to get into our minds that there's actual furniture there. There's an actual floor and walls and pillars and, and the doorposts were shaken. There's a door that you get in. You know when we, we'll get there in a minute, but we're going to dive into Revelation chapter 4. It says in verse 1, and I saw a door open in heaven. And we see these uh, artistic pictures of what that may have looked like and we see like just a bunch of clouds and then a, like a door floating there 
I don't think that's what it, what John saw. I think he saw the door open, but then it was connected to a building. <laughs> it wasn't just this like door just floating in the midst of the air. Like, oh, there's a door. Where does it lead? I don't know. No, John saw the whole heavenly city, and it begins to describe it throughout the book of Revelation of everything that he saw. So he sees, he emphasizes the door, but he sees the door open, but it's connected to the rest of the walls of this heavenly temple that he then walks through, walks through the door. Scripture presents heavenly things in the most tangible, vivid terms but yet, our worldview causes us to see heaven as mostly immaterial and abstract. And in the Bible, invisible does not mean immaterial. But just because we can't see it doesn't mean it can't be seen or touched or, or interacted with. Although we are not able to see Angels and the buildings and the structures and everything that's happening in heaven right now, that doesn't mean they can't be seen. And that doesn't mean they don't have a distinct form and substance that doesn't change from one moment to the, to the next. Again, heaven is not some sort of heavenly hologram. So if these two things are true, that heaven is not remote and distant, it's actually a place that's involved in actually governing our planet and our, our reality and our experience as human beings, and if it actually has physical substance, even, I would say, even more real, more physical, more, more uh, tangible than the earth is right now, we can conclude that that place is the most relevant place in the entire universe. Although in truth, it is heaven that's meaningful and supremely real because it's the place that determines all reality. We on earth are peripheral. The exact opposite is usually what we think. That we are most important and that heaven is not very important. And just by the fact that, and I'm talking in a general sense of the body of Christ, heaven is not talked about very much. It's not thought about. It's not meditated on. But God's changing the season in the earth. And he's revealing that the dwelling place of God is the most important place in all of the created order. And we need to be familiar with what's happening there. It is the source of all life and power and order and our neglect and thoughtfulness, thoughtlessness reveals how, just how inconsequential we think that place actually is. We think that it's irrelevant. We think that heaven doesn't actually matter. And we don't think about it. And even this affects our prayer lives because the more that we believe that that place is real and that person hears and understands and moves at the sound of our voice, the more we will pray. 
So the prayerlessness in the church is partially because we don't have a revelation of heaven. We don't believe it's important. We don't believe it's real. We don't believe it's physical. We believe it's just kind of this in-the-sky floaty place. (laughs) And we don't believe that it actually matters to our lives now. How can we boldly come to the throne of grace in our time of need if deep within we believe that that throne is an ethereal projection given for John's edification that exists in a remote abstract realm that we know nothing about? What inspiration will we find to to reproduce the unending songs of praise in those heavenly courts when it's scarcely more than a vague fleeting dream in our hearts? When we stand before the judgment seat, terrible in its glory, what reason will we muster to explain while the preoccupation of the four living creatures was not ours also? When we stand before the judgment seat, terrible in its glory, what reason will we muster to explain why the preoccupation of the four living creatures was not ours also? And it's because we don't view heaven as real. So we're going to talk about the throne room. So turn in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. This is where it's going to get good. Because we're fascinated by beauty. And this is the ultimate place of beauty. I believe David saw heaven and he called it the consummation of all perfection. He called it the perfection of beauty. In that place where God dwells, Revelation 4, we find the the beauty of God put on display like no other place in all of Scripture. I love this passage of Scripture. Psalm 96 says, Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So let's study a sanctuary. Let's if we want to know true beauty and we were made for true beauty and we're fascinated by true beauty. The Bible says that beauty is in his sanctuary. So let's study his sanctuary. What's happening there? As we are beginning to discover this when I pray. I don't want to speak into the air. Or in or just have a mental vacuum when I pray. I want to focus my mind on the biblical descriptions of God's throne that are set forth in Revelation chapter 4. The majestic beauty of the Father's throne as revealed to John is the clearest and most detailed depiction of God's throne in the Bible. I want to encourage you not just to say, yes, I was inspired, that was a great message, I received some new insight into God's throne, into God's beauty, but actually take Revelation 4 and... Dig and search and ask questions and go deeper because really I am barely touching the surface this morning in talking about Revelation chapter 4. There's so much that I, I have yet even to, to, to discover myself, even though I've been diving into this subject for a few years now. The Holy Spirit longs to reveal the beauty of God to us. So these things are not unavailable. They're not too far away. 
And the Holy Spirit desires, it's his delight to escort us on a great and lifelong treasure hunt into the beauty of God. And this changes everything. It changes the way we pray. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we interact with God and with one another because God's, God's beauty begins to determine how we live. So let's read Revelation 4, 1 through 8 together. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And then verse 8, verse 7, And around the throne were four living creatures, and they were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So here we see the description of the throne room, and I imagine... John, the first thing he says is he looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and he hears the voice which in Revelation chapter one is Jesus like a trumpet shouting to him, come up here. Come up here. And I believe this is not just an invitation to John to come up here and see. It's an invitation to the entire body of Christ and that's why he wrote it down. For all of us, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are saying, come up here. I want you to see me. I want you to know me. I want to reveal something to you. I will show you things. Anybody want God to show you things? I want to be caught up in the Spirit like John to see what John saw. I want to be the one who responds to that invitation and says, come up here. And by the Spirit of God living within us, we have access to see by the eyes of faith what John saw because it's written here for us to see in the inside. We need to have a sanctified imagination when it comes to viewing this passage. We need to begin to picture what would it have looked like as John opens up that door in heaven and begins to walk through. And then it says the first thing that he sees in, I imagine, in the distance, it says, behold, a throne. Behold, a throne set in heaven. He didn't even see, the first thing he saw was a throne. And then he says, and then there was someone seated on the throne. So he walks in and he's struck by the first thing he sees. It's a throne. There it is. And it's and a throne is a royal seat, a chair of state. The throne is sometimes an elegant chair, richly ornamented with sculpture and gilding, raised a step above the floor and covered often with a canopy. That's from uh, dictionary.com. 
That's what a throne is, okay? So he sees a throne. He sees a chair raised up, elevated, with someone seated on the throne. Now, often I, I thought about the throne for years, and I never got this. And I'm like, man, I should have been more attentive and thought about this more. But, like, what is a throne? A throne is a place of government. A throne is a place where a king sits to make judgments and make decrees and to hear the requests of his people as they approach him. That's what a throne is. It's governmental, right? So this is a governmental court scene that opens up in heaven where God is sitting on his throne and he's ready to make decrees. He's ready to hear requests. He's ready to, to move in power and a dispatch angels and do all kinds of things in this place. He's sitting on the throne. He governs his creation from this throne. Here, he is exalted in the highest place and receives our worship and listens to our prayers. Yahweh, the creator of all things, dwells in the heights of heaven, in the holy temple, which is the seat of his government. From this room, a real place, he receives worship, governs the universe, hears prayer, and releases decrees on behalf of the saints as he leads the course of human history all the saints and angelic beings in this governmental prayer center of the universe are empowered by god's beauty and so john first thing he sees as he walks through the door is the throne he sees someone sitting on it and then he begins to describe that great someone that he sees and we know it's the father so the first thing that John sees is the beauty of God's person. So there's going to be four P's in this sermon. God's person. God's partners. God's power. And God's presence. God's person. God's partners. God's power, and God's presence. So first, John sees God's person. And it says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So he gives us three different descriptions of what that one, our Father in heaven, looks like and feels like and acts like. Okay, the first one, it says that he is like jasper, a jasper stone. This is like a diamond-like crystal brilliance, and it's radiating through God's throne, and it's radiating through his person. And then later in Revelation 21, it says that this same jasper quality, diamond-like brilliant shining glory reverberates throughout the entire celestial city. So God's nature of brilliant light shining. I mean, it, Paul says that God lives in unapproachable light. This is the light that shines from his throne, and it's this reality that God 
will not be overcome by darkness. He's the one that shines. He's the one that uh, says, let there be light. He's the, he is the light of the world. He is the light of the entire city. His glory of the jasper, diamond, brilliant light shines through him. It speaks of his beautiful, fascinating, and terrifying glory. We think of like a diamond, clear as crystal, and that's what God looks like. When John saw him, it was like he was, he was, he had this clarity about him. He had this shining part about him. We see in Revelation 1 that it describes John already saw the face of Jesus shining like the sun. Psalm 104 says that God covers himself with light like a garment. The garment that God uses to cover himself is light. So one day, you and I are going to go into that throne room and see what John saw. We're going to go into that place and see that jasper brilliant light and fall down and worship him. And then it says he is like a sardius stone. This emphasizes how God feels. So the jasper, diamond-like, brilliant quality is how God looks, and the sardius emphasizes how God feels. And a sardius stone in the ancient world is a, a brilliant red. It's a red gem, and it de depicts God's fiery desires for his people. It was this ruby-red brightness that was radiating out of God. So we see, like, in God, he is shining and he's burning. He's the burning God. He is not passive in any way at all, like us. He is the one who is zealous and passionate. He is the one that has deep emotions, like a fire burning within him. Moses said that God, in Deuteronomy 4, he says that God is like a consuming fire. He may have, Moses may have seen the same reality that John saw when he looked upon the throne. That God is a burning fire. And I believe this has to do with the way that God loves. In John 15, 9, it says, Jesus saying, as the Father loves me, so have I loved you. And if this fire is a representation of the way God loves, he is a burning fire. You know, like, I don't know if you guys have heard of this totally um, atheistic uh, conference that happens in the United States and maybe around the world. It's called the Burning Man. And they set up, it's, it's just a, party of sin basically and they go out into a desert and all they camp out and then they set things on fire and they have this um this big uh wooden man that they set on fire in every place they go and they call it the burning man it's like this big you know and they do drugs and all kinds of immorality and everything happens but god is the true burning man He's the one that burns with fiery desire and affection and love. And in the same way that he loves his son, the son loves us and he desires that we would love him with the same fiery love and affection that he has. 
Song of Solomon 8, verse 6 says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Now listen to this. Its flames are a flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Another translation says, the very flame of Yah. The very flame of Yah, the very burning nature inside of him, the core of his being is this sardius stone appearance with burning desires for his people and jealousy that love would reign in all things. Song of Solomon 8 verse 6. Its flames are a flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Okay, then it goes on and John sees this emerald rainbow emerald is the color green right an emerald rainbow i don't know how it's green but it's a rainbow maybe it was like multiple shades of the green so it was like this rainbow and it says that it was around his throne and this word in the greek is actually not like we only see a partial rainbow it's only like a half circle this word means it encircled the throne it was all sides of it were surrounded by this emerald rainbow. And this describes how God acts. So we've seen how God looks. We've looked at how God feels. And now we're looking at how God acts. And emerald represents mercy. Emerald rainbow of mercy surrounds God, God's throne. After Noah's flood is when we find God puts his rainbow in the clouds and he says, I will never again flood the earth to destroy all life. And so it's this, he, he literally goes, I have placed mercy in between me and my people. And all of my acts are now tempered with mercy. All of my acts now have to go through the the rainbow of mercy before they actually touch my people. God's beautiful personality is seen in how he relates to his people with great kindness and tenderness. And at the end of the day, when we see him, we will say everything you've done is mercy, mercy, mercy. Everything you gave us was mercy, mercy, mercy. In Genesis 9, uh, he says, I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant. In Ezekiel 1, it's interesting that multiple people throughout the scriptures actually saw the same thing. They saw the same reality. So Isaiah saw... The same throne room and the same angels singing the same song that John saw a a few hundred years later. And then Ezekiel sees the same thing. In Ezekiel 1, it says, like the appearance of a rainbow, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it, around the throne. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So Ezekiel saw the same rainbow that John saw. And the emerald rainbow speaks of mercy, and it encompasses all the plans and actions that issue forth 
from God's throne. His mercies cover all that he does, and it endures forever. Now, if there was not this emerald rainbow around God's throne, we would be consumed by that shining, jasper, brilliant light and his glory, and we would be consumed by the fire of judgment and love because uh, there's this um, Native American saying that says the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. And this is the reality that God's love and his judgment are one and the same thing. And if his love were to touch us without the emerald rainbow of his mercy, we would all be consumed. But because of his mercy, we are not consumed. And it's interesting, the most repeated song in Scripture is this song. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, and his mercy endures forever. So we see God's person, how he acts, how he, how he looks first in the jasper brilliance, how he feels in the sardius burning red reality and how he acts how he relates to his people in the emerald rainbow that surrounds his throne and then we go on to the beauty of god's partners so we're in verse four around the throne so so we see john is like the first thing he sees is the throne Then he sees the one sitting on the throne. He describes the person of God that he sees, the father of glory he sees. And then he kind of, it's like he, 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 his eyes adjust a little bit to that reality. It's like, oh my word, this is so overwhelming. It's the first thing that catches my eye. Then it's like, okay, I'm adjusting a little bit. What else do I see? And then, oh, around the throne, he sees something. And he sees 24 thrones. And on the thrones, he saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. So he sees 24 other thrones around God's throne. And this is something that I love about God and I want to be like, is that he doesn't say, in my throne room, I get the only throne. He actually says, no, I want others to rule with me. Does God need to do that? He is the ultimate wise being in the universe who rules over all things, effortlessly speaking stars into existence. And yet he says, I want partnership. I want people with me. And the theologians have debated, is this angel's? Are the elders actually humans who are redeemed? And um, I've gone back and forth, but I think I've landed on, I believe that my opinion is that these are actually redeemed humans. And one of the reasons is because later in the next chapter, the 24 elders actually say, you have redeemed us. And they're singing a song and they say, you've redeemed us. So God doesn't redeem angels. When angels sin, they're cast down. When man sins, they're given mercy. And they're given the blood of Jesus to wash away their sins. What a glory that we have. 
So it says that these 24 elders are sitting. Sitting is, the, again, the place of, of government. It's the place where it, they're, they're not standing ready to go into action. They're sitting so that they can release the decrees and hear what is going on in this council room of heaven. God's beauty is seen in the exaltation of the saints as they are enthroned, robed, and crowned. The presence of the elders around his throne reveals his desire for partnership with his people. And I imagine the 24 elders are in kind of like a semicircle around the front of God's throne. And the first thing it says about them is that they are enthroned. They are sitting. The elders are enthroned with God's authority, showing their value and dignity. This points to the exaltation of believers. God's salvation so cleanses and exalts his former enemies that they can now reign with him as his bride. All of us were once the enemies of God, and he so transforms us in the grace of God that we get to sit with him on his throne. It's the promise that Jesus gave in Revelation 3.21. It says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. What glory that we would be brought in to the very deepest, closest place next to God's throne. Then it says that they're robed. The elders clothed in white robes speaks of their priestly ministry. So these guys are kings sitting on thrones and robed in white robes because we find out later they begin to act out their priestly ministry. They're made for worship. These are the worshipers, and they're ones that are closest to God's throne, and we find out the ones closest to God worship most. The ones closest to God bow down more than any others. The ones closest to God that have been exalted to the highest place actually gaze on God, respond to the other songs going on in the throne room, and they worship. And they praise him. So they're robed in this priestly ministry. And then it says they're crowned. The elders wear golden crowns of victory because God remembers and rewards their works from this life. This dignifies our life of obedience in this age. And it's interesting that in Greek, there's two different words for crown. The first word for crown is diadem, which means like the, the crown that a king would wear that's given to him with authority. The second type of a crown is the crown that a athlete would wear after the, he's run the race and won the race. And it's, and it's the word stephanos. The Greek word Stephanos for crowns is used in this context. So it's not just a crown that you give to a king to establish his authority. It's the crown that's given to an athlete after they've be been victorious. And so we see again, this angels don't have to run a race and overcome sin. But we as human beings, if we're faithful, we will actually be given crowns just like these 24 elders have crowns. And we will be placed on thrones. We will be placed in positions of rulership 
in Matthew, I think it's later in 25, it says Jesus is telling the parable of the one, the faithful steward, the one who was faithful over little, only got one city to be ruler over. The one who was faithful with more got to be over five cities. And the one who was faithful with more got to be over ten cities. So our faithfulness in this age actually matters. That our faithfulness to God and our yes to him and no to sin and no to the distractions of this life and the yes to keeping my heart alive and burning in God, it matters because it's going to be rewarded in that day. And God sees it all. He sees every choice for righteousness and he records it and he writes it down. And he says, one day, I'm going to give you a crown. I'm going to give you a crown of righteousness. I'm going to give you a crown as a reward because you remained faithful. You ran your race with confidence and you did not give up. You're going to rule with me and reign with me. It's the same beauty that God possesses in his very being that he's going to give to us. Isaiah 61, I'm sure you've heard of this verse, that God is going to give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning. In that day, he's going to give us his beauty, the shining brilliance and the fiery sardius and the emerald rainbow. He's going to give it to us that we might be like him and that we might rule and reign with him. So we've talked about God's person, what he's like, how he feels, and how he acts. And now we're talking about the God's partners, those he brings close to him, and they're robed, and they're throned, and they're crowned. And now we talk about the beauty of God's power. Verse 5. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. So John, again, you know, he sees the throne. Then he sees the person on the throne. He describes his qualities and what he sees. And then he zooms out a little bit more and he sees 24 elders. And then probably the shock and awe of his life is suddenly lightning and thunderings and voices start coming out of God. From the throne comes lightnings and thunderings and voices. The power of God begins to display, and it, Ezekiel actually describes God as a storm covered in darkness and clouds, and then there's lightnings and thunderings and noises and voices coming out of God. This is the one that you talk to when you pray. This is the one that created everything. This is the one, I mean, if it seems like a fairy tale, it's better than a fairy tale. <laughs> we need to get a little bit more creative in our thoughts of God with the Bible as our, as our, um, as our guide to lead us into the truth of what the Bible actually says. When was the last time that you closed your eyes and pictured God and there was thunders and lightnings and voices coming out of him? This is the truth of what John saw, and it's real. And one day we're going to actually see it. And I believe this lightnings and thunderings and voices represents the power of God. It represents his manifestation 
in the royal court. These are beautiful, glorious, and yet terrifying. Trembling. Because we need to both rejoice in God and tremble at his majesty. There needs to be an element of the fear of the Lord. I believe when that you know, when John saw those thunderings and lightnings and voices, he wasn't just like, oh, there's some nice thunder. Some, wow, lightning coming out of God. Okay. Oh, yeah, noises and voices and interesting. No, I believe he was terrified. I mean, he's describing the beauty of him and then the partners around him and when it says it thundered, you know, I don't know what it's like here in the Netherlands or in Europe, but there's some thunderstorms that like shake your whole house and it, it is a little terrifying. I believe that thunder shakes the entire throne room and it should terrify everyone in that place because God is beautiful and he's merciful, but he is terrifying. There needs to be a fear of the Lord element in that. So when it when we think of the lightning, this is I think of like God's divine life and his energy and his power touching people's lives and touching people's hearts. And in a devotional way, I go, Lord, touch me with the lightning that's coming from your throne. Touch my heart, touch my life that I might operate in your power to release people and deliver people from sin and bondage and depression and and all the other things that they're bound with. I think it it relates to the power encounters with God that we have with him when we're touched by his his light. The lightning of God would strike us in a glorious way. And then the thunderings Thunder is from God in the scripture is often related to specific messages that come from his heart. So when uh, in John 12, uh, Jesus actually is praying and he says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice from heaven came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then it says, therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said it had thundered. That was the voice of God releasing the message about his son that only a few people were able to understand. And then Revelation 10 says there were seven thunders that happened. And it says when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write the message. But God actually stopped him from writing the message about the seven thunders, the thunders of God, the thunders of his message. It's something that is burning on his heart that he desires to communicate to others. Revelation 6.1, one of the four living creatures said with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I studied this word voices. I saw lightnings and thunderings and voices. Oh my. The voices is actually a uh, it can mean different things, but it has this connotation of music, has this connotation of the of singing and voices and um, noises coming out of God. So it's like a symphony is coming out of God. 
it's it's musical it's it's this dimension of of there's sights and there's sounds and there's music and voices coming out of God there's power it says psalm 29 the voice of the lord is powerful and full of majesty so we see that not only what well, we'll see here in a minute in the next couple verses not only do the Creatures around God sing, but God is leading the song with the lightnings and the thunderings and the songs, the, the music coming out of him. He's the leader of the songs. And they're just responding to what they hear. They're just responding to what they see. They're just responding to the beauty and the glory and the majesty of who he is. Amen. And then we see. The beauty of God's presence, verse 5, the second part of verse 5. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the beauty of God's presence is what's described here. The presence of God described in seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And it says they're the seven spirits of God. The Spirit of God imparts God, God's presence to his people to strengthen, renew, and beautify them. In Isaiah 11, it describes the seven spirits of God that rested on Jesus. And I don't have them all memorized, but it was the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of might and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. All those rested upon Jesus. And then we see seven lamps of fire, which are the spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God that imparts to us strength and beauty and gives to us everything we need to empower us to love him with all of our heart. The lamps speak of the spirit's work and the manifest presence of God. I imagine when it says lamps, of fire don't imagine like a little lantern you know like you turn it up a little bit and it gets a little bigger like i imagine like the pillars of fire in the wilderness that went with moses this is not just some puny little fire this is like a blazing inferno of the seven spirits of god so intense and so alive seven torches burning And it's comparable to the spirit hovering over the earth. And these torches, it's really cool when you start to think about the next part is the sapphire pavement, the sea of glass. And the spirit of God with seven torches is hovering over the sea of glass. And it's the same picture at the beginning where the spirit hovered over the waters to release life, to to bring the chaos into order 
fire releases light and heat, and so it enlightens those in darkness, and it melts or tenderizes cold hearts. It ignites, it cleanses, it transforms, it warms, it fascinates, and it terrifies. This, we want to get close to the fire that's around his throne. We want those seven torches to be burning inside of us. And then we have the sea of glass. The, I imagine the sea of glass is kind of like the big conference hall. It's the, it's the place where all the saints will gather on the throne at certain seasons and certain times in the new Jerusalem. The call will go out. Now's the time to go before the throne of God and to stand on that sea of glass with all the saints and all the angels. How big is that place? We know there are billions of angels. And however many saints there are from throughout history that have said yes to Jesus. And all of us together will be on that, on that floor. I mean, vast expanse looking at the throne of God, worshiping him there. Perhaps several billion believers will worship one day before the throne of God on this vast crystal sea. In Revelation 15, it says that the sea of glass is mingled with fire. So as we're standing there, there's fire in this glassy sea. And then it describes the living creatures. I love talking about the living creatures and these are called the seraphim and the seraphim means the burning ones those closest to God burn with his fire they are attendants who are nearest to God's throne and they sh so we see they have six wings and Isaiah it says with two they covered their faces with two they covered their feet and with two they're flying and then it says in Revelation 4, 8, that they have eyes everywhere. You know, imagining these creatures that for a, a while I was like, they're kind of ugly. You know, it's what I picture in mind, like eyes everywhere, six wings. Like what? This is strange, you know. But my my view began to change as I was I was um, just dialoguing with the Lord about the seraphim and saying, God, you're beautiful, and nothing but beauty is around your throne. So I need to change my mentality of what I picture when I read about these seraphim and go, these are, the mo these are some of the most beautiful creatures that will ever exist. And so they have eyes everywhere, you know, eyes on their head, on their chest, on their feet, in their armpits, you know, like eyes <laughs> everywhere. And all their... I, so imagine with me for a minute the first time that God created a seraphim the first time that he forms them and fashions them and then they open up one eye and then they open up all their eyes and they gaze upon God and he says the only command that the, this is their job description this is your job description seraphim look at me that's their job description. With all of their eyes overcome, and they have to have that many eyes to take in all the glory that they're viewing. 
of the thunderings and lightnings and voices and the brilliant jasper and the sardius burning and the, the voices and the sounds and everything coming out of God, if they didn't have that many eyes, they wouldn't be able to take it in. And then they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And if you know what the word holy means, it means separate, set apart. It means I've never seen anything like it. It means it's transcendent. It's far above. It's beautiful. Transcendent beauty is what I like to say. When they cried holy, they were saying transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty, transcendent beauty. God, you're beautiful. We are overcome by your beauty. We're stunned with all of our eyes taking in the glory that we're seeing. And we have to cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who was and is and is to come. And so they cry out. And it's interesting that four different faces are revealed in the seraphim. Each one has a different face. The first one, shows a lion and that represents the it, so all the different faces represent a different facet of redemption a different facet of who God is a different facet of who we can become in him so the lion represents the warrior with courage the warrior with courage the calf or the ox it represents the servant persevering in the mundane. The man, yep, the calf or the ox is the servant persevering in the mundane. The man is the dignity of relating to and ruling with God. The dignity of relating to and ruling with God. And then the eagle represents Soaring in the spirit. It's the ability to see. It's the prophetic. And even, it's interesting, there's um, different commentaries. Look up different commentaries on Revelation 4. And it is so fascinating to study and then turn into conversation with God. What he looks like and what is around his throne. But um, there's different ones that compare these four faces actually to the... Uh, the the um, apostolic uh, ministry. So the lion is like the apostolic ministry. Um, I forget the exact, but it's the fivefold ministry, which is actually pastors and teachers are combined into one in some translations, and so it's the fourfold ministry. But um, they actually connect with these four faces. So you can study that more later. So these seraphim, one like a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle, all with six wings and eyes all around, beautiful singing, holy, holy, holy. And then Isaiah 6 says, when they cry holy, the doors of the, the doorposts shake and tremble. That's just the voice of the seraphim. What happens when Jesus sings? What happens when Jesus lifts his voice and begins to shout? There will be power released in that. Then we get to 
Revelation 4, verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their throne, their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. I just love all throughout Revelation 4, just underline every time it says the word throne. I mean, it's like a lot of times. I've counted it before, but I can't remember. It's like, to him who sits on the throne, verse 19, before him who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, cast their crowns before the throne. And so three or four times in just those two verses, the throne is emphasized. Prayer and worship has always been at the center of God's purpose. And we know that because in heaven, he had a blank canvas to work with. He could have created it however he wanted, right? In heaven, his perfect will is done perfectly. The design is perfect. The atmosphere is perfect. There's no rebellion in that place. There's no sin in that place. Everything is exactly the way he wants it. And don't forget, the throne room is the same as the temple. The throne room is the same as the temple. Therefore, government happens in the environment of worship, of singing, of music. Therefore, when we try, when we think about prayer, when we think about worship, when we think about what God is doing in the earth today, and then Jesus prayed with the verse that we started with. Our Father, in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's the environment of heaven? What's happening there? He's ruling the earth, hearing prayers. All the activity that's happening is happening in the context of worship. It's happening in the context of prayer. So all of God's government is worship and prayer. That's how we engage in the government of heaven now is by actually engaging in prayer and worship together with him. Okay, so that's why it's so important that we understand as we're a part of prayer ministries, as we're a part of Desiring to plant prayer rooms on YWAM bases and college campuses and local churches and all of these things. This is not just a peripheral thing. This is God's government. God wants his government established on the earth. He wants us to be like those 12 or sorry, those 24 elders that are bowing down before the throne uh, enthroned, sitting, knowing their authority, knowing their identity before him robed in priestly garments, ready to minister to him at any moment, and knowing the crown of glory that's ready for them when they persevere and are faithful through the trials and tests of life. And so in verse 9, it says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, uh, and then verse 19, they cast their crowns before the throne saying 
you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. In other words, you're the creator and you're the sustainer, therefore we'll worship you. And then we find out later, Revelation 5, we don't have time to go into all of that. Revelation 5 reveals the slain lamb of God. And then the song of the lamb, the song of the redeemed. You are worthy to take the scroll. For you have redeemed us from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And you have made us kings and priests. And, you, and we will reign with you. Prayer and worship are among the few things that we will do both now and forever. They're central to God's government in his royal court where he sits on his sovereign throne. John didn't just see a cool scene. He saw God's government. He saw a courtroom session happening. He saw decisions and decrees being made. He saw maybe answers to prayers being released because we see in Revelation chapter 8 that there was an altar before the throne and there was um, the incense rising up and the incense is the prayers of the saints rising before the throne of God where God hears the prayers of the saints and there's a physical representation of our prayers in the heavenly temple that's there's this incense rising before him and it pleases his heart and then he responds and it says in Revelation 8 that the angel takes the prayers of the saints hurls it to the earth and then there's thunderings and lightnings and voices the same exact thing that John saw in Revelation 4, where there, the something happens. It's the activity. The release of power happens. Okay, are you guys getting this? Our prayer and our worship releases thunders and lightnings and voices out of God. There's power in the connection between us and the throne. And this is why this is so essential in our intercession that when we close our eyes, we stand there on the sea of glass with those 24 elders seeing the seraphim singing holy, holy, holy with the emerald rainbow and the jasper and the sardius. God is there and we make our requests before his throne. And then he releases power. In response to our prayers. This is real friends. It's a real place. Where God really hears. And really responds. To our prayers. Unceasing worship. Like we see. It says day and night. They never cease. Unceasing worship. Is the only fitting response. To the worthiness of Jesus. In the fullness of time, at the wisest point in history, God overflowed and revealed the delight of delights, his son. In the formation of Israel, God prepared the world for the unveiling of the unparalleled splendor, unimaginable brightness of his son. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The eternal son became Jesus of Nazareth. What the Father has always so enjoyed, now men and women can also enjoy. The object of the Father's gaze 
has now become humanity's gaze. And that's the goal of this whole session is to get us to gaze on God. To get us to do what the seraphim are doing right now. He is beautiful and glorious. And again, that, that um, what I said earlier, when we see Jesus face to face, what excuse will we muster to describe why that preoccupation of the four living creatures was not ours too? That the preoccupation of those 24 elders was not ours too. Oh, the joy of worshiping God. Oh, the joy of gazing on his beauty. Oh, the joy of spending our hours in our days ministering to him and singing of his nature and his character and his love and his mercy and his fire and all of the scene that surrounds him. Amen. This is the picture we want to see. This is the beauty we want to gaze on. I'll make this last statement. If our prayer rooms and our prayer ministries are not rooted in the beauty of God, they will become needs-based prayer rooms not necessarily connected to the heart of who God is and what he desires to do. And we will become discouraged and we will become uh, overcome by the darkness of the world that covers the earth and will get darker and darker as these days unfold. We must be rooted in the beauty of our Father and of our Savior. We must be rooted and gaze and dive deeper and deeper and deeper. So I encourage you, when you go back to your homes, when you go back to your prayer ministries, when you go back, take Revelation 4 and do Bible studies on it. And bring all your friends into it and go, let's go deeper in this. Let's get Mike Bickle's um, uh, notes on it and let's dive deeper. Let's get other commentaries of people that uh, A.W. Tozer has some sermons online that are brilliant um, related to this passage and many, many others, even throughout the ages. And don't get caught up when you study the book of Revelation on the charts and the, the all the different timelines and all of those kind of things. Those are important, and maybe there's a season and a time for you to dive into them. But when you go into studying the book of Revelation, don't forget the title of the book of Revelation. It says, the revelation of the Antichrist. No, I'm just kidding. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The entire point of the book of Revelation is to see him as the king, as the lamb slain, as beautiful and glorious as the one who's coming. So, let's continue. I'm just introducing these ideas and these thoughts of who God is, and let's journey with them. Uh, more with him together. Amen?